conversation today with uh, with some of you, both in the group meetings we've had and in, in meeting individually with some of you. I was struck several times by through people's uh, sincerity, really, and uh, honesty and passion of exploring their life deeply. The way in which often we find our spiritual practice, often we find our life as we're trying to kind of apprehend the truth or happiness, peace, ease, contentment, and that it just seems elusive in some way. It seems just out of grasp. It seems if I can just do something, be present, or that kind of whatever different bit of meditative jargon might suit us in the moment, that something lies just out of reach. And it's just within us somewhere or just above us in some way there's a, there's a very nice line <coughs> uh, in a book by James Joyce where he describes somebody and he says Mr Duffy lived a short distance from his body Mr Duffy was obviously the average retreatant we can easily feel that somehow we're not quite right in the midst of our life, but are somehow just slightly separate from it. And meditation may be, we have the idea that there's the promise to fully embody our life, rather than being next to or two steps behind so we come here with the sense maybe of that, of that possibility the sense of possibility to we could, we could fill in the gaps for whatever we language we might use see things clearly, know the truth, heal our life, whatever we might use. And rather unfortunately, rather annoyingly maybe, there's these kind of various things that get in the way, like having a body that produces discomfort. And so we've got got our life, we've got our, this sense of possibility there in meditation and if only this body didn't kind of produce uh, discomfort in the knee or the back or the shoulder, then we'd really probably be able to get this meditation thing going can't be too hard it's breathing and being conscious and then of course the body uh, after a couple of days now, maybe settling in. Not so much discomfort in the body. And for a few moments we think, wow, the knee doesn't hurt. Now it's really going to be fine. Uh. 
nothing to keep us awake anymore. At least that pain in the knee kept us present. We don't tend to completely space off when the knee's sort of raging with pain. But now that's not happening. Just I call this... Well, the friend who was organising a retreat in uh, Dharamsala it was a, a, about ten years ago when uh, Goenka uh, people in India were just... It was the first retreat they'd ever organised in Dharamsala. Dharamsala is a town in the Himalayas in India where I lived for some time. And it was a lot of work to get this retreat going. It was the rainy season and they had to use tents. They had no real buildings. And few committed hardcore Goenka yogis worked for a couple of weeks solidly to build this everything up <coughs> and then they uh, served on the retreat and managed and looked after the people that came and the retreat all went well, it rained a lot and the tents leaked but the yogis were equanimous and uh, <laughs> it was okay and then at the end of the retreat somebody went to the teacher and said oh, I'm, I'm very happy to have met the Dharma and, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to come and do some more retreats but now I'd like to learn the advanced practice and the teacher said well you know I'm, that's it I'm afraid we, there's no ad- advanced practice we, you know, we pay attention and we investigate what's going on and, and the student said yeah but you know these people that are managing I've seen them all doing the, the advanced practice and I'd really like to learn that he said no 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 it's and uh, the person said, yeah, I've, really, I've seen them. They're not meditating like the rest of us. You know, I see them doing this special technique where they just go like... <laughs> <laughs> so you can content yourself when you're nodding off that it's advanced practice. So it seems to be, unfortunately, there's always something. If we're not careful, we can tell ourselves the story that there's always something that's stopping it being quite right. It was the leg pain. And we say, if only I didn't have this leg pain, I'd be able to meditate. But then drowsiness. If only I wasn't drowsy, then I'd be able to meditate. I wonder how many different obstacles we need to discover before we recognize that uh, there's something wrong with that version of events we're telling ourselves. If it's not one thing, it's another. Or as a Jewish friend often mysteriously says, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. So we can have this this impression of trying to kind of <laughs> catch up with our life. We instructions point us very simply to, to a sense of simple presence with what's unfolding, with being with just what is. 
And the, the, being with implies going nowhere. Not stepping outside of this. And yet how do we contrast that with the feeling that I always need to do something to get to this? You see the, the, the problem there. Teachings and the goal of practice invite us again and again to stop. To allow. To make space for. To be with. And we feel very inspired by that. We say, yes, I want to stop. I'm going to be with. Right, here I go. Now I'm really going to stop. But the I'm going to puts it outside of our experience. I'm really going to be mindful of this breath now. But we've just missed this breath in the intention to be mindful of it. We'll have to wait for the next one. Luckily there's always one, but the tendency is quickly to move on. Always to be propelling ourselves towards the moment. But the very propulsion towards being here is driving a, a, a road straight through it, straight through the here. Somebody... Uh, in conversation today, I described this a little bit and uh, very beautifully described their experience as in the, in, in the, similarly to what I've just been saying, that struggle to get, to attain, to be with, to concentrate, to relax, to focus, to all the right kind of meditative type things we want to do. And then described actually stopping doing that. And the way he described it beautifully, he said, and I let the moment come to me. It's very beautiful difference to me trying to apprehend the moment with my practice, my meditation, my effort, my f focus, my concentration, all these things, this practice that's going to take me to peace, happiness, realisation. Where, where is that destination called peace, happiness, realisation? Where could it possibly be? What a kind of radical and fundamental shift to give up trying to get to peace or happiness and to let it come to us. I let the moment come to me. I let presence arrive with me. I let life be with me. And the discovery then for that per person was that in, in that stopping, in life arriving, any sense of destination or something to be done 
or somewhere to be gotten to or something to be attained is dissolved. Suddenly Mr Duffy is right in the centre of things and not a short distance which is where we often reside. That possibility spiritual teachings point out again and again is imminent always here for the very reason that it couldn't possibly be elsewhere there is no elsewhere our mind tells us a complicated story of our past and a fabrication of a sense of future. But where are they? Aside from the storyline, aside from the thought about the past, aside from the movement towards the future, where are they? Where's that? Where's past, future? Where's anything other than this? It's a kind of bad joke, the idea of a destination. So when spiritual teachings point to this sense of imminence, can be very inspiring for us that we don't need to get to the end of a complicated road of um, improvement. It would be a tragedy if our spiritual practice was reduced to getting better, being a better person, getting better at meditation, having better concentration, being more aware. So it's very easy. Our mind is so used to working in that kind of way that it's very easy to have the sense, even if we've heard this kind of thing before, even if we've seen the fiction of it before, to fall back into subtle ways of seeing our practice as better, 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 best. A kind of bang flash somewhere down the road where everything will become clear and we can relax. But we're back into the, the, the pursuit of the destination. And if we... If we do that, we start to live not only just behind the destination, but even far away from it. Sometimes even lifetimes away from it, we, in the descriptions of spiritual practice. And then it can start to feel kind of hopeless. 
difficult a long road and we might even say well I'm, I'm never going to get there we look to the ideal the mind moves forward into the into a future and when I look at the, my miserable condition now and my ideal that the future must be a very long long way away and then the kind of the heart sort of aches in longing, beautiful, sincere longing for peace, for ease, for kindness, to live well, to live wisely, to live gently in the world. We kind of it seems a long way to attain that because right now maybe I notice harshness or confusion. I contrast that harshness and confusion against the ideal of some sort of perfection that seems like it must be far away. And I suffer really across that gap between where I could be in some sort of illuminated state and where I am, some sort of dire, murky state. So how do we reconcile that gap with the kind of beauty of this imminence that spiritual teachings point to. That the destination couldn't possibly be elsewhere. The beauty of that possibility in some ways, when we contemplate, when we reflect on that, that sense of imminence, is that this moment is enough. Dare we allow this moment to be enough in whatever condition it is? That's extraordinarily radical to not to genuinely give up trying to fix perfect, better, improve, manipulate in any way at all the conditions of this moment. And that's always possible for us. The word vipassana in Pali literally means seeing clearly. It doesn't refer to going anywhere to be clear or making anything clear. Just seeing clearly what is. And the opportunity for that, where is it? It's here. We can only see clearly into this. And the wonderful thing is that there's always the opportunity for that, no matter how caught up we get. There's always the opportunity, or whatever complexity we may have got into to the mind, for some clear seeing that can kind of uh, cut through whatever's been piled up in terms of that complexity.
when we look at our, our practice in the sense of seeing clearly, I'm struck again and again and talking to people here by how easily it becomes a process of measuring how much of the time I've been aware and how much of the time I've been caught up and kind of grading ourselves in success in that way. We easily use the language of good meditation and bad meditation, good day and bad day. But it's really worth reflecting what on earth do we mean by a good meditation and a bad meditation. When we say the last sitting was good and this one is bad. Presumably the last one was successful and this one was is unsuccessful. The last one I was more aware and this one I'm less aware. Maybe success in meditation doesn't have very much to do with how much of the time we're aware of our breathing. Because if it did, the goal of meditation would be 100% awareness of breathing. But the goal of meditation is discovering something utterly liberating in life, something that will radically transform our sense of the, the problematicness of life. It's hard to imagine that just really noticing our breathing all the time could do that. But we, we build a lot, a, lot, a lot of problem around the fact of not being aware. Oh, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware so many times in that sitting or for such a long period of time. And then, oh, we go to the group, we say, I was aware for ten minutes. And there's some sense of uh, appreciation for the steadiness, for knowing a, a calmness, a spaciousness, a steadiness of mind, which of course is, is beautiful and can be both inspiring and nourishing in practice. But we have to be really careful to see that we're not making a, 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 a split, calling when there's awareness of breathing or of body or whatever, that's success, that's right, that's what meditation's all about. And when there's being caught up, that's a real problem. And the more I do, the less that'll happen. So if I come to more and more and more retreats, maybe we should promote this idea. It might uh, increase the numbers that go out of the house. You know. If you come six times a year, you'll get up to 80% awareness and only 20% uh, caught up. And then we can give some guarantee. I wouldn't dare give a guarantee. <laughs> So we get into the idea that the, the being aware is success in meditation and being caught up is lack of success or is failure. But, how is that the case? Could that be the case? When we're caught up, what's the problem with being caught up? I don't know. I'm so, so caught up, I'm not around to think there's a problem. So busy thinking about last week, last year, next, anything else, 
In the midst of thinking about last year, I'm not thinking, oh, this is really wrong that I'm doing this. No, I'm lost. Just lost, so no problem. <laughs> then I come back and wake up out of that kind of reverie. I'm back, no problem. I'm not caught up anymore. But there's, uh, by grace, life has woken me up out of that reverie and I find myself present. Not caught up. So, no problem. So, no problem being caught up and no problem being here. How do we make that so problematic? <laughs> How we make it problematic, tragically, we, at the moment of waking up, right there, that's where we go off into, oh, I was caught up, it was such a problem. I shouldn't be caught up. It's the, the, the description of being caught up that's problematic. It's the idea that I should be present and I wasn't. That's problematic. We can't demand that we be present because the mind tends to just keep going off. I spoke a little bit about this the other night with the, the, the beating up when we wake up thing. So in those moments where there's, by grace, as I say, life wakes us up, There is the capacity to be in the midst of life, we could say, with whatever's going on. And that's where I wanted to talk a little bit about this, this, this layering. The Buddha called uh, papancha, it's the Pali word to describe layering, or building up, or making much of, making mountains out of molehills, we could say. Or even making mountains out of nothing would be better I was wondering this, this evening as I uh, what, what illustration I could give for a papancha and I wondered maybe you all had some papancha this evening Yanai and I were in a meeting for much of the sit after tea so he didn't come till I don't know, maybe it was just five or ten minutes before the end of the sitting. I wonder, for some of you who had opened your eyes and noticed that neither of us was here, if there was any papancha, any building up. So the firstly, there's just the, the contact in the midst of life. Open the eyes for some reason. Emptiness. Nothing going on. It's our kind of supreme Dharma teaching. <laughs> Not being here at all. <laughs> and then, so there's just just the the contact with what's happening. Oh, they're not here, and we're very equanimous and calm, so we don't mind. They're not here. And then ten more minutes goes by, and knee starts to hurt. They're still not here. <laughs> Maybe now a little bit of papancha starts. What's the matter with these guys? 
You know, they don't need to meditate or what? Or whatever it might be. But as the time goes on, and we have a sense that maybe, maybe sometime soon the bell ought to ring, and there's no one there to ring it, then there's more scope for papancha. We build one thought on top of another. Firstly, no one there. No problem. But we start to imagine the scenario of what it would, ha- would mean if neither Ian or I ever came. <laughs> <laughs> or even in the midst of feeling tight and having hurting knees, even if we dared to come three minutes past when the bell really should ring. So many times in our life that from the basis of one contact, usually a contact that impacts either with a strong kind of negative charge, something we don't like, or with a strong positive charge, if we're not attentive, we tend to go off on that. We, but we build up on the basis of one uh, initial contact, extraordinary kind of uh, stories, really, scenarios, better. Something impacts pleasantly, like uh, some kind of connection. There's famous over years that these retreats have been happening in the West. Retreats in the East are more often a bit more segregated, and men all over one side, women all over the other side, and then eating separately and that kind of thing. It probably still went on, but we have more chance for it now because we're a bit looser in the West. We all sit here and there. And there's this famous syndrome observed called the Vipassana romance. (laughs) So this is papancha, basically. Papancha based on some pleasant contact. We see someone and we like the look of them. And that's it. But what does it turn into? It it can turn into incredible kind of things. And then we sort of find amazing links, like by cosmic coincidence, they're in front of us in the food queue. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. And we kind of, you know, by the, by the time we're into day three or four, I mean, there's not much else for us to do, you know, just sitting and walking. <laughs> we fill it up with papancha. And by the time, three days into the retreat, we've got a couple of dogs and a house in the country with them. <laughs> <laughs> And then when we eventually get to actually meet them and speak to them at the end of the retreat, the whole house of cars <laughs> come <laughs> tumbling down. So we build up. The, the, the opposite would be the Vipassana Vendetta, is the other famous thing. So based on the negative contact... Somebody starts off innocently, somebody just coughs. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I don't even need to lay out the rest of the steps. You can well imagine. And and we get into an incredible tight situation about somebody... All they've done is coughed. But, But... And then we get into revenge fantasies. And all that can go with it. We can pile up a situation that has no basis in reality other than the piling up that happens in the mind. Papancha. 
It's a very nice word. Horrible experience, but a very nice word. (laughs) The good news is that at any point, if there's this clear seeing, vipassana, that in the moment of recognition, of the moment of waking up, of the moment of coming back, of the moment of actually having some spacious perspective on, on what's happening, the whole process can be ended. The reverie, the building up, the creating endless scenarios, scenarios that may be for our kind of amusement or entertainment, but that are ultimately painful in the way they're completely dragging us away from our life all the time, or scenarios that may be full of anxiety, fear about something happening, may be full of anger, wanting to do something about some situation we perceive as wrong, scenarios that may be full of regret, mind goes back to the past instead of the future, replay some scene, you know, this endless replaying that the mind can do over and over again can be excruciating. Constantly replaying the same tape from the past in some sort of forlorn attempt to change the way it was. I should have said this, I could have said that, I should have behaved differently. Regret. One can go to the past in blame. They shouldn't have said that to me. How dare they say that to me? And the blame. And these things that kind of shift and change. Blame to anger to revenge fantasy, etc. I can go back positively charged to nostalgia. Moment from the past. Oh, it was so like this and so like that. And we did this. And next time we'll do that. And then on. Leading our life away, leading our life away, leading our life away. And we're actually, we're strengthening over and over again throughout our life in so many thousands of times. These my moments, mind moments of strengthening this pattern of getting sucked into the vortex of the Utterly unreal. Nostalgia, regret towards the past. Hope, fantasy, or fear towards the future. Basically, the seed of it being some contact, thought contact, or seeing, like I described with the NINO not being here seeing something, hearing something, is a contact that just gets out of control because we haven't recognised how sloppy our minds can be, how un- untamed, one of the b- words the Buddha used, how raucous, how... Uh, <laughs> the the mind can be 
because it, we, it's gone unchecked for a lifetime, or at least this much up to now of a lifetime. <coughs> and then we, we recognize the capacity of this kind of practice, this kind of way of engaging with our life, exploring our life, that actually can do the work of taming isn't quite the right word of but training if you like but maybe I would just to qualify it we can have the idea of training as something being something very severe and sometimes that's the we attempt to train the mind severely that, that kind of rigid meditation view right I'm going to sit here and get to the bottom of this. <laughs> and then, of course, we get very upset when the mind refuses to uh, cooperate. Or we get very uh, disillusioned. After some time, we start off, here we go, full attention. And then, after ten minutes of the mind going off, we say, oh, hopeless. I don't know why I bothered useless meditator go and do uh, crystal healing instead (laughs) (laughs) so if we talk (laughs) if we talk about training the mind rather than that kind of severe uh, regimented kind of thing it's it's it's. Uh, I think there's actually an image in the tradition, but I, I'm not sure where it comes from quite. But an image of uh, as if you had a, a, a wild horse that was untrained. If you just try and tie the horse to a stick, as a way of training it to be still. So the mind is like this. Mind is like a wild horse going here and there. If we try and just tie it to a to a stake, or tie it to a tree, and say, right, stay here. The horse will kick and, and, and be very agitated. It's bound to. And the way to train the horse is rather to build a strong fence, but with plenty of space, and allow the horse to kind of jump and run, but it, there's some container, so that it can calm down, so that we can approach it, so that we can build a relationship. And so working with the mind is very similar. We, have the, we kind of make the perimeter fence of the retreat of our watchfulness of living by precepts <clears throat> and we approach the wild horse of our mind with our attention we build a relationship through that willingness to be gentle with to accommodate that we've spoken about in the last few days It's useful maybe to just look at your meditation practice and see what kind of tools are you using to train the mind. Is there a tendency to want to tether the mind to a stick? To try and force it in some way towards being present, being attentive? Because if there is, it'll, it'll kick and buck and that that hurts 
So this this papancha, this layering of our impressions and our ideas and the kind of way we develop those ideas and this possibility in any moment of that to see through it. So we might be sitting here in meditation and uh, we're missing somebody. Home or a loved one or a our child or something and there's a moment first there's just the contact as I described and there's the kind of movement of the heart the first the person just comes into mind there's the contact and then the movement of heart oh <coughs> missing wishing to be with no problem just the mind moves in relationship to something there's an impact and there's a movement of it. The person impacts. There's a kind of pleasant sense. I spoke about warm fuzz the other night. So a bit of warm fuzz is there. Ah, and the movement towards. If there's awareness, that's seen for what it is. The person comes to mind. There's a sense of missing. Sweet. It's a sweet contact. But, if there's no awareness, if we don't wake up in the middle of that, it starts to build. I'd love to see them. And then maybe in that love to see them, there's already a kind of moving away from that which is, into that which could be. There's that suggestion of if only. But right there, there's the possibility for seeing what's happening. And if we see it, then we see, ah, longing. You might just label it, ah, the longing mind. And we can build a relationship to that. In the same way I just mentioned about the horse. <coughs> there's the possibility to, build, to relate to the fact that the, mind's, that the heart is longing. That it's moving. So no problem. But if we don't see that, Chances are there's another layer. The heart moves in longing, like, oh, I'd love to be with. And then we look back, but I'm not. And there's a comparing between what I would like and what I've got. If we see that, no problem. Do you see at every, at every moment, is that the, the fantastic, the extraordinary thing about exploring our life in this way is that we don't need the experience to move to be a particular way. All those different experiences are okay. But they all have the potential, layer upon layer, to lead us into contraction, to lead us into problem, to lead us into difficulty, to lead us into remorse. But they also all have the possibility, if revealed in the light of awareness that's always there, there potentially, to be the expression of life at the moment. The longing heart. The disappointed mind. What's wrong with the disappointed mind?
Nothing. If we really clearly see that that's the condition of the mind, disappointment at not being... Right now, disappointment that I'm here at Gaia House instead of with my children. It's okay. What makes it not okay is we just don't often see it that clearly and we, we buy into the disappointment and we buy into its story. <coughs> and then we spend that time here sitting on the cushion thinking about how we could be with them or what it would be like if we were with them or all that stuff and it gets very tight. But in the midst of that being very tight, there too is the possibility to see it. Oh, being very tight about wanting to be with my children. Getting really kind of contracted around that and forgetting that I'm not there, that I'm right here. Whatever we see, there's the possibility to build a relationship with it. To meet it, to accommodate it. And that which meets our experience isn't bound by it. That which sees disappointment isn't disappointed. That which recognizes anger isn't angry. That which can see clearly into confusion isn't confused. That which can relate to fear isn't afraid. And our practice and our life takes on a new dimension in that shift from being at the mercy of the story of our fear or our disappointment or our confusion to being much more interested in that which is attending to it. That which knows fear and isn't afraid. And I think a lot of that can be contained in this image of the wild horse of the mind and the, the kind of parameter fence. It's, it's a way of attending, a way of training that demonstrates that sense of spaciousness, that willingness to allow the horse to kick and buck and run around, to allow our mind to be the way it is. Not in a, in a, in a completely wild way, because one establishes the fence of one's attention. Or just at the side of, or feeling constantly like we're just behind our life and running to catch up, to genuinely approaching it in the heart of right where life is unfolding, in this moment, this body, this mind, this life. That's the promise and the possibility of what we're doing here together. And may 
our practice be in the service of that possibility for our own benefit the benefit of one another and the deepest benefit of all beings.